As we've begun our journey through the book of Matthew, we've seen that this book is about a king and his kingdom. We saw in chapter 1 how this king is one that was promised long ago, even to David, that a descendant of his would sit on his royal throne and would reign over a kingdom that would last forever. We've seen that this king is here in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only is he here to reign as king, but he's here, we saw in the second half of Matthew chapter 1, to save us by being with us, being the very savior the righteous Savior that we need. We saw last week as we looked at responses to the coming of this king that there's two ways we respond when the true king comes. That's either worship or war. That this king, Jesus, is born into a kingdom at war with itself because we have these two competing parties, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. All the way back to Genesis Three, this war has been going on. And it's a war that continues as the true king, the true offspring of the woman, comes to make war on the offspring of the serpent. We saw that as Jesus was born into what should have been his kingdom, that the people of Israel had become, in essence, the people of Egypt. And that the king had to flee his kingdom, even at the very beginning, because that kingdom was at war with him. We saw as well that we're all born at war with the true king. We're all born pretenders to the throne because we all assume that we ought to reign our own lives. And so when Jesus comes and makes this, this claim that he is king and that he rules everything about us, ourselves inside just bristle against that. What do we do, though, when the true king comes and he's going to reign whether we like it or not? That's what John the Baptist comes to do here in Matthew 3. John comes on the scene wearing camel hair and eating locusts and acting all weird like Old Testament prophets. And what does he do? He says, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're going to see today his message of repentance and how it's received by the people around him. And then we're going to see the true king come And how he responds to that message. We're going to see today the text uh, in two parts. We're going to cover the whole of Matthew 3. But it's really kind of two emphases. This demand of the king that's coming. Repent. Prepare the way for this king. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then we're going to see that in Jesus Christ what's demanded is also provided. That's the main thing we're going to see out of this text is that the coming king gives what he demands. The coming king gives what he demands. And we're going to see his demands first and have our hearts, Lord willing, pricked. And then we're going to see the provision for what he demands. Would you pray with me one more time and then we'll read Matthew chapter 3 together. Father, I pray that as we behold in this chapter of Matthew the demands of your kingdom, which are high, which call us to examine ourselves, which make us uncomfortable and maybe even fearful. I pray that those reactions, right reactions to those demands would be met with comfort 
Even the same comfort that we read about in Isaiah, that the king is coming to rescue his people and giving what he demands. I pray that you'd help us see these things. We can only see and hear your word rightly with ears that hear and eyes that see and hearts that believe if your spirit works in us. And so would you do what only you can do in us? Would you meet everyone in here through your word this morning exactly where you intend to? And would your word accomplish what you intend it to do? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, friends. Let's read Matthew chapter 3 here. Follow along with me as we read this story. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's go back and look at the beginning here. We're going to take this text. We're going to see these two emphases, but we're going to take the first one in two chunks. Because we've got John's initial message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then we've got his strong, what's called his fire sermon, where he lays into the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so we're going to start with verses 1 through 6 and look at the basic message that John was preaching as he preached about the kingdom of heaven. Verse 2, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's calling for repentance. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? What is the kingdom of of heaven at hand. This is Matthew's favorite term to describe the reign of God through Jesus Christ. 
This is Matthew's favorite term to describe the reign of God through Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven is the reign of the sovereign God. And John is saying that kingdom has come near. It is at hand. Some of your translations might say it's near. It's the same thing. It's coming and it's here. It's on the way. John the Baptist here is like Paul Revere crying, the British are coming, the British are coming. Except he's crying, the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is coming. It is here. And you must repent because it is here. This royal reign of God, or what the Old Testament called the day of the Lord, is here. And that's bad news for those who would pretend to be their own kings. Bad news for King Herod. Bad news for the Roman Empire. Bad news for the leaders in Jerusalem. And bad news for all who would be king of their own domain. And so he calls for repentance as a right response to this kingdom. What does it mean to repent? We might be familiar with this term. We might not. We might think we know what it means. In essence, it's built on the old Hebrew term, which means to turn. To turn around. To change direction. In the Old Testament, the call to repent was a call to those who had broken God's covenant, who had made promises to God, and God had made promises to them, and they had broken those promises. And it was a call to them to radically return to faithfulness to God. One way to think about repentance, I think, that's helpful, is that repentance is a radical recognition of the reality of the reign of God. Repentance is a radical recognition of the reality of the reign of God. A little alliteration for us there. The idea is when you repent, you are responding rightly to reality. You're responding to the reign of God. If the kingdom of heaven is at hand, God's reign through God's king is here. There is a certain way you ought to behave. And if you aren't, you better change that. That's what repentance is about. That's what repentance is. It's a right response to the reign of of God. It's a radical recognition of this reality. For these people in John's day, it looked like what he, so, he shows us in verse 6. Some were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It looked like confession of sins, and it looked like John's baptism, which was a, a kind of using of the Jewish water rite of ritual purification. So washing themselves to show that they had been purified from their uncleanliness. It's a commitment to a new way of life for these Jewish believers. The difference for John was that normally what would be requested or required is that for baptism, Gentiles coming in and wanting to be part of the Jews would be baptized. But here John is saying to the Jewish people, you need to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand and you are not living according to the kingdom. You too need to enter the waters of baptism, confessing your sins and appealing to God for a clean conscience. This kind of repentance that John calls for is necessary because the main kind of point of this section for Matthew is that repentance prepares the way for God's saving work. Repentance prepares the way for God's saving work. What I mean by that is in reference to verse 3. Notice verse 3, 
we've got an Old Testament quotation. For this, being John, is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We read that text from Isaiah as our call to worship this morning. What's happening in context in Isaiah 40, there's a major transition in the book of Isaiah, in the prophecies of Isaiah. Just prior to Isaiah 40, God's people are in hopeless, hopeless circumstances. They are completely devoid of any expectation that there will be rescue in the future. They are in exile. They are facing insurmountable enemies, and they have no reason to believe that there will be any abatement of this judgment of God that's been brought on them. And then this voice breaks forth in Isaiah chapter 40 with a word of comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Why would God speak comfort to his people in such a hopeless circumstance? The question is quickly answered by Isaiah 40 verse 3. This quoted here, prepare the way of the Lord. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. What this is, is an announcement that the king is coming to rescue his people. And when he comes, yeah, there's, there's preparations that need to be made. Often in the ancient Near East, they would make preparations for a coming king by leveling roads so he can get there and things like that. There's, there's preparations to be made for this coming of the king. And the idea behind these preparations is that you believe the king is actually coming. That you believe the king is actually coming to your aid. In the midst of the hopelessness of judgment and exile... The people of God were called by the prophet Isaiah to act in a way that showed that they had faith that the king was coming. And John here, in saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is calling the people of God to act in the same way. With faith that the king is coming. And because the king is coming, there ought to be repentance. Repentance prepares the way for God's saving work by being an act of faith. In the fact that the king is coming to save. There's no reason to repent of sin. There's no hope to be found in repentance of sin. We would rather hide it and cover it up. If there is not going to be any rescue from that sin. Right? The only reason that would motivate us to repent of sin. Is for hope that there can be some rescue. And so this is John's message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is Speaking a familiar message to the people of God. This is what Matthew means by recording these weird details about him wearing this belt and this cloak of camel hair and eating these locusts. He is right in the line with the description of the prophet Elijah. Later in Matthew, he's even, we're even told this is the Elijah that was to come. God's people were expecting that there would be this prophet who would announce the coming of the Messiah King. And here he is. John is a witness for the prosecution that God's people need to repent. And he's calling them to the repent in the same way that the Old Testament did. How will they respond is the question. Will they respond like their ancestors did? And we see quickly that that's the case. Yeah, they will. Verses 7 to 12. John shifts a little bit this scene. 
when the Pharisees and Sadducees come in verse 7. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. This might seem pretty mean to us. Like, why does John just jump all over these Pharisees and Sadducees? And we might think, you know, okay, later in the gospel, they're kind of, they do bad things to Jesus. They oppose him. We know they're opposed to this king. But we don't really know that yet in the story, right? This is our first introduction to Pharisees and Sadducees, and John is already calling them brood of vipers. Notice what they're doing, verse 7. They're coming to his baptism. Notice how different that is in describing what the crowds were doing already, right? They were coming from all over the place, and what were they doing? They were being baptized by John and confessing their sins. But here we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to the baptism. I think Matthew, in describing it different, is indicating that they're coming not to repent and receive this baptism, but they're coming rather to observe, to spy out what John's doing, figure out why so many people are flocking to this crazy wilderness prophet. They might even be trying to flee wrath, but they're certainly not coming to bear fruit. And John quickly gets to that point in his sermon, right? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The implication being, they are not. Matthew is setting the stage for the future of his gospel as well, recording these details, helping us see how Jesus is going to be opposed by the religious leaders and elite of his day. But he's using them as a model, not just for other religious leaders, but for all of us. If we look at Luke's gospel, we see that John addresses the crowds in Luke's gospel this way, not just the Pharisees and Sadducees. He addresses everyone who's coming, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee. And so I think we can safely say that the problem he is addressing here in his sermon is a problem for all of the crowd and by extension for us as well. The problem is in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The main problem that these leaders are facing that John is trying to address with them is fruitless repentance. It's repentance without fruit. It's confession without change. It's faith without works, to put it in the language of James. It's something happening that is a temporary decision made without any lasting change coming about. Which, if we think about our definition of repentance as a radical recognition of the reality of the reign of God, then this kind of thing isn't repentance, truly. It's not good. Fruitless repentance is no repentance at all. One of the ways it looks, uh, fruitless repentance looks like, is found in 2 Corinthians 7. Don't necessarily have to turn there if you don't want to, but I'm going to just read it for us. 2 Corinthians 7.10 briefly says this. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a kind of response to conviction over sin That produces in us sorrow, but that is not sorrow that actually leads to life. It's sorrow that leads to death. Give you an example. If you were to go and, if you're married, you were to go and be unfaithful and have an affair. 
that would lead to all kinds of horrible consequences in your life. It would destroy many things that you love and hold dear. You may be sad about those things being lost without any sense that you have sinned against a holy God and need to repent. You understand the difference? There's a, there's a sorrow that leads to the effects or that, that, that flows from the effects of sin that has nothing to do with true repentance that bears fruit because it is repentance built on the reality of the reign of God. This is why David's words in Psalm 50 are so important when he talks about after, after having committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband, he, in his confession and turn to God, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Not that he hasn't done horrible things to all these other people. He certainly has, and there ought to be repentance and reconciliation there as well. But David recognizes that the primary problem is his sin against God. And fruitless repentance does not recognize that. It looks at the effects of sin and says, this hurts and I don't like it, and I'm sad about it. God can use that to drive you to repentance, but if that's where you stay, that's what John is talking about. These Jewish leaders coming to him, fleeing from the wrath to come, knowing that there's pain to be had if they continue down the path of living in rebellion against the king. And yet they come only to avoid that pain, not really to recognize the reality of the reign of the king. So John says, do not have fruitless repentance. Bear fruit, rather, in keeping with repentance. What does that fruit look like? What is fruitful repentance then? He gives us a little bit of insight in Luke. Luke records some of the crowd's responses to John's, this part of John's sermon. When he tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, in Luke chapter 3 verse 10, the crowds ask him, what then shall we do? And he answers them and he says, whoever has two tunics, to sh- it, it, or whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations, and be content with your wages. In other words, John called these people coming to him to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And what that looked like for them was generosity. It looked like contentment it looked like integrity honesty we see other places in the scripture where we're called to bear fruit like galatians chapter 5 which juxtaposes the works of the flesh with the fruits of the spirit right i bet many of us are familiar with what the works of the flesh are and what the fruits of the spirit are This is what John is calling. He's calling for this kind of repentance that is a radical recognition of the reign of God. And he's calling for that to produce continued change in the life of the people. For them to display these fruits of the Spirit. All through Matthew, one of the distinctive features of Matthew as a gospel is that Matthew is really heavy on the ethical demands of the kingdom. We'll see this when we go through the Sermon on the Mount. That we are called to display the kind of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees in order to even enter the kingdom of heaven. 
that we must have this kind of kingdom ethic in order to have true repentance. The Westminster, excuse me, larger catechism, question 76, puts the answer this way. What is repentance unto life is the question. And here's what they say. Repentance unto life is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the spirit and the word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, flee the wrath to come, right? But also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins. And upon apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sins as that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. You got to love Puritan sentences, right? They're long. What that means in essence, repentance is brought to the heart by the spirit and by the word of God. And it's brought to the heart when we see both the penalty of sin, that there is wrath to come because of sin in judgment. But when we also see the filthiness and odiousness of sins, when sin is bitter, when we see sin for what it is, the really disgusting reality of it. John Piper talks about like when, when you treasure your sin, it's like you're sitting in a dark room and you're holding this dear, dear, precious, right? To use Gollum's words, you have it and you're, you're holding it and you're petting it. And then the light turns on and it's a giant cockroach. And you realize how disgusting it is. And you reject it. You throw it away, right? That's what repentance looks like. It's recognizing the filthiness and the odiousness of your sins. And comprehending the mercy of Christ. That if you repent in turn, you will be saved, right? And then it's purposing to live In this new obedience to walk this new way. That's what John is talking about when he calls us to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. His main point is that true repentance must bear fruit of righteous living. There must be righteous living that flows out of repentance or it's not true repentance. It's sorrow leading to death. John also warns in his fiery language in verses 10 to 12 that there is judgment to come. On those who will refuse to bear fruit. Right? He says in verse 10. That the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even right now. The the lumberjack is getting ready to take a swing. And to cut this tree down. But not not at the stump where the tree might grow again. But at the root. Where it has no hope of growing back. This judgment is imminent. And it is coming. And it is severe. He says in verse 11 even, that there is one coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Brings this fire language back in. Again in verse 12, the chaff will be burnt with unquenchable fire. There is judgment to come for all who will refuse to bear fruit. Because God is purifying his people. That's what he means by this image of the winnowing fork. This was grain was harvested and laid on this platform. And crushed initially so that the chaff and the wheat could be separated and then to winnow it they'd throw the grain up with this winnowing fork and the wind would blow the chaff away and they'd be left with just the grain just the good stuff that they would gather into the storehouse god is purifying his people with judgment 
So repent, John says, and bear fruit in keeping with these, this repentance. He warns against, and this is a warning I want us to hear. I think this is the most important warning for us today. He warns in verse 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Do not presume to tell me that you have Abraham for your father. For God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. There is a temptation among these Jewish leaders and among the Jews in general to hide behind the Father Abraham clause in the covenant. You made these promises to Abraham and we are Abraham's offspring. Therefore, these promises are ours regardless of what we do. We don't have to change what we're doing. We don't have to live in a different reality of this reign of The king, we can be our own kings because we have Abraham as our father. It's a shield that they hide behind. And John says, it is a false gospel. It is a false gospel. We must hear that there is no hiding behind a false gospel from this threat of judgment if you fail to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because we are tempted to hide behind shields of our own False gospels of our own that we would put our trust in. For example, John might say to us, do not, might say to us, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have John Calvin as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up Calvinists even from these stones. In other words, we might be tempted to say, we have right doctrine. We have the true understanding of the Bible. And therefore, we have special status with God. That exempts us from this requirement to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We might take and justify certain pet sins of our own. Because our doctrine is better than others. And we might say... You believe, you believe wrongly, therefore you're more at fault. Therefore, you need to, God's coming to you, but not coming here to judge me. We might say that we have the moral high ground as our shield. Because we respond rightly in society to different, different questions. Questions like abortion or questions like the sanctity of marriage. Or an understanding of creation as male and female. We might say that because we understand these things and believe these things to be true. And know that this is what leads to flourishing. That therefore we have protection from the potential of the wrath of God. This is just virtue signaling in reverse, right? The world would do that all the time. Would say because I have this morally superior view. I am not the one who needs to repent. You are. I'm the one who's safe. I'm the one who's in favor. And that is simply not true. On a lesser extent, we might be tempted to use our good works as a shield. And to say that things we do, either morally or spiritually, cause us to be in God's favor. Because I serve so much in my community or my church, God likes me more and I have a special status with God that exempts me from bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. These are all 
ultimately empty. We even see a tendency in the church to say, because I have this, I said a sinner's prayer back in 1978. I have no need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance in 2022. That is incredibly common in churches. And it is wicked. It is not what will exempt you from the wrath of God. Friends, if you appeal to or hide behind anything as justification for fruitless repentance, you are in incredible danger. If you look at your own sinfulness and your response is not to cry out to God for mercy and seek to live a life in accordance with that mercy, but your response is instead to appeal to something like we have Abraham as our father, you need to be warned that God can make Christians out of stones. And he does. We must not justify the fruitlessness of our repentance. All of life, according to Luther's first thesis in his 95 theses, must be a life of repentance and bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. Given this danger then of using these excuses, using these shields, what hope do we have? I'm going to give you a hope, but I want to warn you against one more shield before we do. And that's the shield of feeling sorry enough. You might be tempted to say that you are right with God because you feel sorry enough over your sin. That is not the gospel either. The efficacy of repentance and forgiveness does not depend on how badly you feel. That's the world's bill of goods that they would sell you. That's all the world has to offer. That's why the response to movements like wokeness is simply continual repentance and self-abasement as an attempt to personally atone for your sins, whether they be sins of whiteness or whatever it is. That's a false gospel. But that creeps into the church so easily where we believe that as long as we feel bad enough, we are right with God. And if we don't feel right with God, the problem is not that we need to look to Christ. The problem is that we need to feel worse. And so we pursue that. And then we say, at the end of the day, we presume to say, I have my bad feelings as my gospel. And we find they're ultimately empty. They don't save. Instead, we must learn the truth that repentance and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is meant to do what we saw in verse 3. Prepare the way. That repentance and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is meant to prepare the way for God's saving work. It cannot save us. There is no amount of repentance and bearing fruit or what we might call righteousness that will ever save you. All it can do is create in you the desire for the gospel. God uses his spirit to do this. This is the role of the law in our understanding of how we relate to God. The law creates in us an acknowledgement that we must repent because we have transgressed the law. 
and an acknowledgement that repentance must be continual and must bear fruit because we continue to transgress the law. But the law itself cannot grant what it demands. There is no way to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, by living according to the law. By merely repentance and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. The only way to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, is by hoping in the good news of the true gospel. And it's this good news that John gives us in here. He even hints at it as he starts crying out and saying, there's judgment to come. He says in verse 11, someone is coming after him who's mightier than him, whose sandal he's not worthy to untie. And this one coming after him, what is he going to do? He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. With fire, judgment, yes, but with the Holy Spirit, which is desperately needed by God's people. He's going to come and he's going to give what he demands. That's what John is saying. This coming king will give what he demands. And in verse 13, we see the king is here. The king is here. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. This one who was called to, or who John was called to prepare the way for. This one who he said, this coming one is coming after me. This one is here now. And what does he do? He comes to John to be baptized by him. John is rightly confused by that, as we may be too, if we think about baptism and we think about repentance and we think, Jesus didn't have anything to repent over. Why would he come with John to be baptized by him? Jesus says in verse 15, as John fights back and says, no, I don't think I ought to baptize you, Jesus answers and says this, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The one who has no need to repent and the one who always bears fruit in keeping with repentance comes to be baptized by John to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? I think there's at least three aspects to this. One is that he demonstrates his humble obedience to the Father. By submitting to John's baptism, Jesus is showing he intends to always live in accordance with the reality of the kingdom of God. Jesus' entire life will not need to be repentant because he is already always living in light of the reality of the reign of God. As his father, he wants to do his will. And so, he submits to this baptism. The greater is baptized by the lesser. And in this, Jesus shows his humility. A second reason that he is fulfilling all righteousness is he is receiving the anointing By which he will accomplish the righteousness of God. See Jesus himself. Is God incarnate. We know that. But Jesus is also 100% man. The council of Chalcedon did the best they could. To figure out how we can talk about. Jesus as 100% God. And 100% man. Because that math doesn't always make sense to us. But because he has. A human nature. It is By the Holy Spirit that he himself will prove to be righteous. The Holy Spirit descends on him in his baptism. Jesus himself, as the incarnate God, is also filled with the Holy Spirit, just like you and I. And he is receiving the means by which he will accomplish the righteousness of God in his baptism. The third 
and I think one of the most significant for us, is that in entering into the waters of baptism, Jesus himself, as the sinless one who had no need to repent, is identifying with the sinful people he came to save. Jesus, as he enters the water of baptism, is entering the waters of baptism with sinners. In the same way as he's crucified between two thieves at the end of his life, all of his life is spent in identification with sinners. This is how the scriptures can speak of God causing him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He is identifying with sinners in participating in this baptism of repentance. And in doing that, God responds to that faithful, humble obedience and identification with sinners by ripping the heavens open and speaking. It's pretty rare that God himself speaks audibly in the Gospels. When he does, we ought to listen and pay attention to what he says, right? It's pretty rare that he speaks audibly. Twice in Matthew, he does it. He tells us what he thinks is the most important thing that we need to know when he speaks by ripping open the heavens and audibly sending his voice out. And what is the most important thing you and I need to know? It's verse 17. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The most important fact for you and I to know is that Jesus is the beloved son of God with whom he is well pleased. God is unequivocally declaring to us who Jesus is and the fact that he delights in him. And then God gives us Christ. God is here showing the value of the treasure that he gives. This is what Paul gets at in Romans 8 when he talks about if God gave us his own son, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? In Jesus, we have this inestimable treasure of all of the grace, all of the mercy, all of the righteousness we could ever need to escape the wrath of God, to make us right with him. In his beloved son, God is giving us everything. And in Jesus then, the coming king, Jesus himself, as he gives himself, gives the very thing that he demands. He gives the righteousness that he calls for. Righteousness doesn't come from us, but Jesus receives the spirit from the father to give to us. And then in giving us the spirit, what happens? We are united with Jesus. We are drawn into the fellowship that the Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed from all eternity. That's what happens when you receive the Holy Spirit. And when you receive the Spirit from the Savior, you are united with the Savior. And so just as he came down into the waters of baptism to identify with you and I, we get to now identify with him. And by receiving his Spirit, we get to hear the words, You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. The same words that are spoken of Christ by God are spoken over you and I. This is what Paul means when he writes in Galatians, like we read, for the assurance of grace, that we get to cry, Abba, Father, because we've received the spirit of adoption. The very words that are spoken of the Son are spoken over you and I 
in Christ, God looks at us and calls us his beloved children. This is the hope that then leads us to be able to repent and be able to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because the Spirit is now at work in us, reorienting our desires, causing us to want to live and be more like Christ every day. All of this text is saying that in the coming King, everything is demanded. That with the coming king, everything is demanded. And so you must be warned and you must repent. And you must bear fruits with keeping and bear fruits in keeping with repentance. But we're also told that the coming king, not only does he demand everything, he gives everything. Even up to his very life, we see at the end of Matthew, right? And in giving us everything, we are led to take heart and rejoice. Because this is the hope of the gospel. The coming king gives what he demands. It's the hope that's built into the call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the hope that's built in the call to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And it's the hope that's built into that statement that's spoken over Christ and over you in Christ. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great hope of the gospel. We could not ask for more than you have given. There's nothing left for heaven now to give once Christ has been given, and that is everything. And so we praise you. I pray that you would guard us in Christ Jesus from hoping in these false gospels, from turning our hard hearts away from bearing fruit, whether it be out of discouragement, Lord, or whether it be out of hardness, whether it be out of any kind of self-centered desire, whatever the case may be, Lord, I pray that in Christ, each of us would embrace what you have given in your Holy Spirit, in the perfect righteousness of your Son, that we would truly be changed to look on the coming of the King with joy. And continue to live a life of repentance knowing that we have been given sweet forgiveness. Thank you for the promises that you've given us in Christ Jesus. That in him everything is yes and amen. We praise you. Amen.